Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father God, we ask you to open our ears and eyes. We want to see Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are coming and letting the Apostle John show us you. We want to become like you. We want to know you. You are our Lord. We ask you to make us true disciples. And so, Lord, I ask that the word would come alive and you give me the grace to get out of the way and let us hear you. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. We'll start at John 13, verse 36, and I'm going to read down to 1414. We are on that final evening. This is the night he has just been betrayed by Judas. Judas has gone out into the night, and he's on his way to the temple authorities to report where Jesus is. Um, And while that's happening, there's time. And in the hour or two or whatever they have, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's pouring into them uh, the most important things as he's preparing them for his leaving. Here are the things you must know because I am going to physically leave. And here's what you need to know. And so he's, he's pouring those things into them and having this conversation. And the... Uh, These are some of the things he says, but I want you to see the reaction of the disciples in particular, and then the response of Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus has, by the way, said up here, he says, I'm leaving. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's made that remark. And then verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. That wasn't the end of the conversation. Peter then argued with him again. Yeah, it got, it got worse, and Peter should have, would have been wise to be quiet. And, and it just pressed, and then all of them chimed in and said, yeah, us too. We, we won't deny you. And then he... Anyhow, then mercifully John left that out. So, 14.1. Do not let your heart be troubled. See, I've told you I'm leaving, but don't let your heart be shaken. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Would you say, where I am, there you may be also? And then he said, and you know the way where I'm going. Now Thomas pipes up. We've heard from Peter, now we hear from Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. 
Now Philip joins the discussion. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever version you have there, let's read verse 12 out loud. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. And he says, whatever you ask in my name... That will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let's read that. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then one more, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's do that. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right. What Jesus saw. God knew how weak we were when he called us. Yet he wanted us anyway. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. Nothing we do surprises him. In one of the Psalms, David says he knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. Clearly, he's not impressed with our natural capacities. How silly our well-intentioned promises must sound to him when we try to assure him that we will never fail that way again. Yes, it pleases him that we want to please him, but he knows only too well that our willpower is hopelessly weak in the face of severe temptation. That doesn't mean we can't be victorious. It doesn't mean we won't be victorious. But it does mean we won't until the Holy Spirit indwells us and we learn to lay hold of his power until we truly discover that greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. Until we've learned how to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Do you understand that phrase? Put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Peter meant every word he said when he vowed to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus saw his weakness and replied, will you? Actually, you'll deny me three times before morning. My paraphrase. Peter would have been wise not to take that discussion further, but he felt he knew his heart. He knew he really meant it, so he argued with Jesus. He said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Yeah, us too. Yet as you and I know, because we've read ahead, they all failed just as he said they would. Not at first, and I say that and I give you the reference because remember when Judas and the, and the mob showed up, Peter pulled his sword and lopped off one of the servant's ears, you know. Jesus stuck it back on, and, and, but this was, Pe- this was Peter's great moment. But, but after that, later, after Jesus was arrested, that's when they, when they really folded. That bold resolve collapsed and, as they, and they fled As he died on the cross, they watched fearfully from a safe distance. John didn't. He stood by the foot of the cross. So did four women. 
In the days before his resurrection, they met in secret behind locked doors. But the amazing part is that even though Jesus knew they would fail to keep those promises, he went on to tell them how much he loved them and what wonderful apostles they were going to be in the future. He looked past their failure and saw their glory. He looked past the broken promises and saw men full of the power of the Holy Spirit. What did he see that evening? Whatever it was, we need to see it too. I want to show you what I've just seen there in that, in that gathering. Then Jesus comforted his disciples with these words, Do not let your heart be troubled, literally shaken. Believe in God and believe in me. See, see, say that, would you? Believe in God and believe in me. Yeah. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, and if not, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I come again and will receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. He knew that it was frightening for them to hear that he would leave soon and return to heaven. But he told them not to be afraid, because they could trust him as much as they could trust the Father himself. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you, you can trust the Father, you can trust me just as much. I am not going to abandon you. I am not going to forsake you. Don't be afraid. Just as you trust your heavenly Father, you may trust me. In effect, he said, by putting your faith in me as your Savior and believing that what I taught you is true, you have indeed gained eternal life. I promise you that you won't be disappointed. I have not misled you. Don't you love that line? He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I love that. He's, he's integrous. He said that my, in my father's house, there's many places. And when you follow me and you're going to go there, you're going to heaven. And if it weren't true, I would have told you. I'm no liar. I'm not a charlatan. I'm not trying to mislead you. I would have told you the truth. This is the truth. I, I love that affirmation. He said heaven is a big place with plenty of room. His cross and resurrection would ensure that all who believe in him would join him there to show his disciples how committed he was to come back for them and take them to be with him. He used the, tra he used the traditional Jewish language which a young man would use when he became engaged to a wife. In that culture, a young man would not build a new house but would add an additional room to the cluster of buildings centered around the common courtyard at his father's house. Once his offer of marriage was accepted, he would say to his future wife something like this, I'm going home to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Then when I've prepared a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be my wife. By using those same phrases, Jesus was comparing himself to a young man seeking a wife. In effect, he was saying, I came from heaven to ask you to marry me. And now that you have said yes, I will return and add a room onto my father's house for you. At the appointed time when all is ready, I will return and we will be together forever. That is missed almost entirely, the language that he used. He said, you, you, people are... Uh, I, I did, one person, and that was Ray Vandalon that I referenced there, that, that noted this. Jesus is not inventing those phrases. He says, I'll go and I'll prepare a place for you in, in, my, in my father's house, that whole phrase. In, in a Jewish young man, 
would take, when he's married, he doesn't go off and build a house somewhere. He goes and builds a house, uh, he builds a, a, a living space off of a common courtyard, which was his father's house, around his father's house. They have a courtyard, and then the dad's house is there, and then whatever siblings and others begin to live around that common courtyard. The, he, the, the Latin word they use for that's an insula, but you have this big courtyard. And uh, so you just keep on adding houses around it. That's true a lot of the places in the world. I, I know it's true in South Africa. You go, you go there and you, you add another home to the family compound. And so there is this whole cluster of homes. Of, of the, there's, there's mom and dad there, and there's, there's brother and sister, and there's, a, there's an uncle or whatever. They're, they're, they're together. They live together as a family. And so Jesus is saying, this, this is what's, you lose it entirely if you don't get this. Here he's talking to this group of disciples who, as I'm pointing out, are completely confused. Every one of them has missed his point. It's really a sad moment. We're at the end of three years, or two and a half years, I think, of discipleship, and they're giving these horrible answers and discussions. He says to them, don't worry. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Believe in God. You can believe in me. He says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But he says, if I go, I go and I'll prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm, I've married you. I love you. I'm going back to heaven. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back for you like, like, a, like a young man passionately in love with his, with his bride. And I'm going to take you and you'll be with me forever. He's talking to them with those kinds of, of, of marriage language. I, I love you dearly. I will never forsake you. You can count on it. I'm coming back for you. Don't you love that? What passion and what love for, this, for, the, for them and for us. In other words, he, passionately, he was passionately in love with his disciples as a young man would be with his bride-to-be. He would never forsake them. However, as we will, he will soon explain, that this reunion would begin spiritually long before his physical return. He's going to say to them, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's talking about through the Holy Spirit, I will be with you literally in a matter of weeks. Beginning at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come to dwell within them. And the Holy Spirit, both he and the Father, would be spiritually present as well. Then Jesus added these words, and where I go, you know the way, the road or the path. In other words, I've been telling you these things for years, so by now you should know that I am going to return to the Father after dying for your sins and rising again on the third day. Thomas apparently thought that Jesus was telling them that he was going to escape the hostility in Jerusalem and relocate to a safer place. So he replied that this was new information to them, and they certainly didn't know where he was going, so how would they be able to find him if he disappeared? Obviously, Thomas completely missed the spiritual meaning behind Jesus' words. So the Lord told him where he, where he was going to heaven and that he must believe in order to join him there. Thomas said, he said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everything he had said and done was intended to make it possible for his disciples to spend eternity in heaven with him. His assignment from the Father was threefold, to make a pathway, I'm the way, so sinful humans could return to God, to reveal to humans the truth about God, I am the truth, and to set people free from the grip of death so they could live with God forever, I am, I am the life. Thomas, 
if, if Thomas had understood what Jesus had been trying to teach him over the past several years, he would have understood God's plan. All right, now go on to verse 8. Philip didn't seem to understand the spiritual meaning behind Jesus' words either. He heard him tell Thomas that he'd already seen the Father, and his response was to say, in effect, no, we haven't, but we'd like to. If you really want to calm our fears about leaving us, pull back the veil and let us look in directly into heaven itself. Let us see God seated on his throne. That must have been a discouraging moment for Jesus. Thomas, uh, pardon me, Peter, Thomas, and Philip all had missed the essential meaning message that he had been trying to teach them. He'd repeatedly told them that everything he said and did was a perfect reflection of the Father. To Philip's request to be allowed to peer into heaven, Jesus replied, Am I so long with a time with you and you've not known me, Philip? This is strong language. In amazement, he was asking Philip if during the past two or three years, the thought had ever gone through his mind that Jesus was showing him God. Didn't he realize that God was speaking, he was, Jesus was speaking God's words and doing what God had led him to do? Very likely, there was a tone of exasperation in his voice as he restated the essential principle. The one who's seen me has seen the Father. And then he asked, how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, that's all I've been doing for the past years. Haven't you seen him at work in me? Then he bluntly asked Philip if he really believed in him. He stated the, the question this way. Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He'd used the word in to describe his relationship with the Father before. For him to be in the Father meant that he perfectly represented the Father. He accurately, accurately expressed his will and character. It meant that he was totally submitted and dependent upon the Father. By saying that the Father is in me, Jesus was looking at the relationship from the other direction. He was pointing to the fact that the Father was actively present, revealing himself perfectly through Jesus. At all times, the Father was guiding and empowering him. Then Jesus added this statement, which explained in practical terms the relationship he just described. The very words I speak to you, I don't say for myself. But the Father who abides in me does his work. But he wasn't through with Philip. After explaining his relationship with the Father, Jesus challenged his confused dis disciple again. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me. And if you will not believe my words, then believe because of the miraculous works themselves. This challenge is a sad comment on Philip. Jesus had spoken the same way to the unbelieving authorities. How important was it that Philip and all the disciples believed that God had shown himself to the world through Jesus? He explained it was the key to their future ministry. If his disciples' faith were properly placed in him, if they believed who he was and why he'd come, they, they would be able to ask him for whatever they needed in order to carry out their ministries. And he himself, as the divine son of God, would answer their prayers. The Father had given him authority over all things. So as their exalted Lord, he would work through them to continue drawing people to the Father. How would you like to be Jesus? Right about there. You've spent two and a half years. You have had them 24-7. You've had these men. You have been saying these things to them all through that period of time. They have watched God do miracles that no human has ever seen done on the planet uh, through you. 
they have felt the power of God come. Can you imagine what it must have been like to stand near Jesus as he's ministering in one of those moments? Oh, my goodness. You know, the, so you're, you're sitting there assisting as, as, I mean, it's just and, and healing after healing and deliverance after deliverance. And, you know, till, till you're just so tired and everybody's got, you just got to quit. But the power just, just hovers day after day. And, and then here we are, the last, last few hours together. Peter has no clue how weak he is. Philip uh, is, is completely out of touch. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. At some point, and, and I'll point out in a minute, Judas, the son of James, he adds another idiotic statement. If it were you or me, we'd all be throwing our hands up and going, I have failed. This is a miserable failure. But Jesus didn't. He says, you guys are going to be awesome. And I love you like a, like a young man coming back for his bride. I will so be back for you. And whatever you ask in my name, you'll have it. And you're going to do greater works than I've been doing to this group of absolutely confused people. <laughs> what did he see? Would you look at this? What a discouraging evening that must have been. Peter promising he'd never deny him. Thomas proving he had no understanding whatsoever of the cross and resurrection. Philip asking Jesus to let them peek into heaven. And Judas, the son of James, making sure everyone knew he was still waiting for Jesus to declare himself king and set up his throne in Jerusalem. Yeah, it got that bad. And that confusion didn't disappear. They made more foolish statements that evening as they walked toward the Mount of Olives. I just didn't have the heart to quote them. If it were any, uh, anyone other than Jesus listening to those comments, that person would have been overwhelmed with a sense of failure. Here they were in their final evening together after at least two and a half years of constant teaching, yet it was obvious none of those men understood the main truths Jesus had been trying to teach them. But here is what's so surprising. Jesus wasn't discouraged. Yes, he challenged them and tried to correct their confused thinking, but he didn't announce that they were all miserable failures. He was able to see past where they were at the moment to where they would be after God had worked a miracle. He saw past their weakness to the strength they would have once they were filled with the Holy Spirit. He was so confident of what God would do, he was able to be patient with them before that miracle arrived. So confident in what God would do, he was able to be patient with them before that miracle arrived. He's that way with us, and we have to be that way with each other. Whatever Jesus saw that evening, we need to see it too. Those truths hold the key to unlock hope when we become frustrated with ourselves over repeated failure. And they produce a confidence in God that enables us to be patient with others who have not yet learned to walk in victory. Thankfully, what Jesus said to his disciples that evening reveals many of those truths. Here are four. Number one, he saw their weakness. He was not surprised. He knew them better than they knew themselves. He knew they would fail until they learned to walk in God's power. He knows that about you too. The thing is, we often don't. And I'll get to that. We often expect more of ourselves in a certain way than he does. He, knows, he knew you when he got you. He saw your future when he got you. And he took you as you are. Number two, he saw the gift of his cross and the resurrection. 
He knew it would release a new level of relationship with God, one that had never been possible before in all of human history. Do you hear that? I'm not overspeaking there. What his cross and resurrection would do would completely transform the relationship with God and with the Holy Spirit. Had it never been possible before. Look with me. Go with me to Ezekiel 36. I want you to see this. Jesus constantly talks about the new uh, covenant when he took, held up the communion cup, if you remember. Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. Ezekiel talks about the new covenant. When, when Jesus speaks of this, he's not inventing a phrase. He's not saying, I got an idea. Let's, this is the new covenant. He's not, this isn't something like that. He's saying, this has been prophesied uh, for literally thousands of years, and it's come in my blood. What my cross will do will bring you the promise that's been waiting, that the human race has been waiting for. That my, my blood will bring to you that promise. Uh, look at this. Ezekiel virtually describes the trans, this, the, every step of it. He's, Ezekiel's looking forward to the day that Messiah comes in power, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But he describes the ministry of the Messiah. Here's what he will do for his people. And Jesus has already come, and much of this has already begun. So first of all, Ezekiel says he'll gather the people. And then he says this, verse 25. No, the Lord says it directly through him. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. First of all, I'll wash away your sins. Verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will come in and I will, do a, I will literally do a work. I will take out this cold, stony, unbelieving, selfish, rebellious heart that's in you and I'll pull it out and I will put in a new heart. This is not just poetry. This is not just uh, 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 you'll be a nicer person. It is an inner miracle which only happens when it happens. If you can have a lot of people that say they're Christians and they may or may not have had the miracle. God knows when you and I are sincere. God knows when you and I truly surrender to him. God knows when you and I truly put our arms around the cross of Jesus Christ and trust him with all our heart. And he knows when we don't. And that miracle doesn't happen when we don't. So this is the, you look at church history and it's just stunning how, how awful some of the things people have done in the name of Christ. Christian people, supposedly, who would do things that are, that are, are beyond what un, you would expect an unbeliever to do. You say, how can this happen? Theology doesn't change you. The miracle changes you. Amen. This is so true what I'm saying right now. John will pick it up in his first epistle, and he'll say this. He said, if you don't love, if that love of God isn't in you, you aren't saved. He says, you don't have God. He's not there. You aren't part of him. He's, he says, and he talks about the love for the brethren. He says that, that, that heart to want to do the right thing doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. But it means we love our God genuinely. It means we want to please him. We are his children now. No longer rebels. No longer, no longer living for self. That miracle happens when a man or woman truly repents. That means surrender all to the living God. Not just 
I, I need help. I surrender. I bow my knee. You're God, and I surrender to you. You understand? That's what I used to call put the apple back on the tree. That's how we got in the mess in the first place in the Garden of Eden. That rebellion, I'll decide right for wrong. You put that apple back on the tree and say, you decide what's right and wrong. You're God, I'm not. There's that deep surrender, and then there's the embrace of Christ. His righteousness, not mine. I don't earn it. I receive it by faith. I receive what Jesus has done entirely. He's my Savior. Does this make sense? When that happens... A miracle takes place in the human heart. And you can see it. You can watch it. You can see it in the eyes of people. It literally, it, it's a genuine thing. Out goes the heart of stone. In comes the heart of flesh. And then a third thing. It's, Ezekiel brings that. Look at this. Verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. Where? Yeah. Right. Jesus, I mean, he's re- Jesus is referring to this. He's thinking this. In just a few minutes, he's going to make this statement. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, the, the, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but he will be what? It's exactly. He's not making that up on the spur of the moment. He's quoting Ezekiel. The Spirit of God will be in you. He has never been in humans before. This has never been true. He'd be with humans His power would come upon humans, but never could he come and dwell in the the human vessel because we were unclean. Uh, We'd get momentary washing and all of that, but now through Christ, we have been cleansed and we are holy temples. Now the Spirit of God can come and stay and dwell within me and with me. It's an entire new era. Does this make sense? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my my ordinances. All right, let's go back to our text. Jesus saw that, and he knew that hadn't happened yet. They were men of faith. They were righteous by faith. But this hadn't happened because his cross hadn't happened and his resurrection. He saw the depth of his commitment to them. Like a young man returning for his bride, he passionately loved them and would come back and be with them forever. And number four, he saw the change that would take place within them after Pentecost. He saw them walking in victory and doing wonders for God. Jesus didn't ignore his disciples' weakness. He saw it. But he also saw beyond it. And that vision released hope. He was certain that in time they would become who God called them to be. As we face our own weakness and the weakness in others, we need to see what Jesus saw. The problem is, brothers and sisters, we tend to look the opposite direction. We tend to look at the past. We tend to live our lives in light of what we were and what happened to us and the failures in our lives. And we do the same when we relate to other people. We think of their past failures. We hold them to the past. Listen, if God is in our lives, we are being changed whether we like it or not. You have no option in this discussion. If you belong to him, there is a plan that has been set out from God. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? He says, those whom he he, he foreknew, those he foreknew would come to him, he predestined. 
That means to draw a circle around, to put a boundary around something, to define it and say, this is what's going to happen. Those whom he foreknew, he drew a line around and said, this is what's going to happen to you. And what, it, what is it? You're going to be conformed to the image of his son. God said, if you come, if you come to me, here's my plan. You will become like my son in character not just, and yes, in glory in time, but in character. Not, and, and, and then, so he says, you become like my son, that he might be the firstborn, the eldest brother of a firstborn of the family of God, of, of, of many children. So you and I are being made like him. So when you say yes to Jesus, you have just put your hand in his, and your, your Lord is going to lead you down a path. He's going to change you, clean you, fill you, strengthen you, and you can't get out of it. You can fight. You can stubborn, be stubborn. You can kick. You can drag. You can argue. And he will wait you out. And sometimes he won't wait. And he'll just put, you are going to grow into the image of Christ. Aren't you grateful you have a, a, a Lord like that? Man, we, if it weren't, many of us wouldn't make it anywhere. Jesus looked past where they were and saw that. And he said, I know, what you, I know what's going to happen to you. Right now, it looks bad. But you're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And, 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 your, and, and I, your Lord, and your Heavenly Father, we will drag you forward and you're going to grow. And did they become great men, men of the Lord? They sure did. This Thomas, with all of his, his crazy remarks, became a great... A, a great evangelist. He went all the way to India. Died being shot full of arrows. I mean, the man, there's still to this day, there are, there are churches that trace their roots clear back to Thomas in India. Can you believe that? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, these, these, they did it. They were everything he said they were. Right now, it looks really bad. But he saw past that. We have to see past that with ourselves. We also have to let other people grow. You know, a parent knows this. There's always this wrestling match as your children grow. They think they're older than they are. We tend to think they're a bit younger than they are. And so we're probably both a bit wrong. They probably aren't quite as mature as they think they are, but they're probably more advanced than we think they are. And so there's this wrestling match that goes on. We have to let, we cannot take people and say, well, this is who you were. I know who you are. I know the mistakes. I know what's inside of you. I watched you do that. Because God, if they belong to God, then he's got a hold of them, and he's going to move them forward. And so have you, haven't you had this experience? Somebody you just remember to be an absolute turkey, and you haven't seen him in a number of years, and then you do. And by George, they've changed. God has laid hold of them. And you were pretty sure they were an absolute lost cause. That's because of the Heavenly Father. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Hallelujah. Aren't we grateful he's in us? When we look at ourselves and other believers, we need to see those same four truths. Number one, we need to see our own weakness. Until we realize that the spirit may be willing, but the flesh may be weak, is weak, excuse me, 
we will try to obey God in our own strength and will demand that others try harder to do the same thing. We must hear and believe when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. A victorious life begins the moment we realize we are helpless apart from him. Would you read that last line? It's just good. A victorious life begins the moment we realize we are apart from him. Number two, we need to see the power of the cross and resurrection. This is the source that makes our new life possible. By repenting and placing our faith in Jesus, not only are our sins washed away, but the heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh put in its place. Our desires and attitudes are miraculously transformed as God comes to dwell inside us. And then we begin the process of learning to draw on his power and walk in the spirit. We step into a new dimension. We are able to see and hear in the spiritual realm. At last, we're able to keep the promises we make to God. But that's a skill you learn. You are given the power, but that doesn't mean you know how to use the power. That doesn't mean you know how to draw on the power. That's something we teach people. That's, something that's, that's part of discipleship. How do I learn to walk with God? How do I learn to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit? How do I do this? We must be teaching people, not just leaving them on their own. Number three, we need to see the, the depth of his love for us. He is deeply committed to us. He will always be with us whether we are aware of his presence or not. He wants a relationship with us as close as the relationship he has with his father. Whatever we face, we won't face it alone. And when we see, when we see the others struggle, we can be sure he hasn't left them either. That, that, that love, that passion for us is, is there. Number four, we, see, we need to see ourselves walking in victory and doing the wonders of God. As soon as Pentecost arrived, those disciples began to minister boldly. Pentecost didn't turn them into perfect people. It released them to be growing people. Together as a community, as, as the body of Christ, they started listening to the Holy Spirit and then doing what he showed them to do. Very soon, they began to do greater works than Jesus did in number because, they, because now there were so many more people doing those works Jesus' ministry expanded exponentially. He told them they could ask for anything in his name and he would do it. And they discovered it was true. We need that same attitude. We need to take our eyes off our failures and see the high calling he's placed in front of us. There's a, there's a thing that I, I think it comes with just having an integrous heart. But I, I've heard people say it numerous times. Uh, well, I'm, I can't really do anything because I don't think my motives are exactly right. At any given time, in any given subject, you, the flesh is still there. So if you look at part of you, you've got the wrong, the wrong motives. And you look at the, your, your spirit, you've got the right motives. If you wait to never have any wrong motives, you won't do anything. Now, I, I do know we need to check our hearts, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't, we get way too focused on ourselves. And there's just a point which says, I think this is what God's asking me to do. I'm going to give it a shot. Am, am I the perfect vessel? No, I got, I got my weaknesses and my struggles. But I'm, I'm God's man. I'm God's woman here. And I, we're, just, we're just going to do this. And you just start moving forward. This group of imperfect people, 
he said to them, he said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. I'm giving you my, my authority. And he says, you guys, you're going to do greater works than I've done. And I don't think that can mean in, in quality. I mean, how do you do more than raise a man who's four days dead and rotting in a tomb? I just don't, I don't know what else you do. You know, what act follows that one? But more? Oh, big time. Almost instantly at Pentecost, the church began to just surge in thousands and thousands because now you've got all these men and women full of the Holy Spirit working as a family, working as a team, carrying the gospel all over the world. Within, within a few hundred years, it had just flooded the entire Mediterranean area and around the world. That's, that's what he meant. He saw that, and we have to see it. You and I, all of us, are part of this call. This is our assignment as followers of Jesus Christ. Letting people grow. Discipleship is a process. It takes time. People don't automatically know how to walk in the Spirit the moment they receive the Spirit. Most of us, like Peter, don't realize how weak we are until we've tried and failed many times. Not everyone has someone to teach them how to walk in the Spirit once they're ready to learn, which helps explain why some genuine believers can struggle for many years. Actually, I think all of us do in certain areas. But we aren't alone in that struggle. Jesus is with us and will not abandon us. At times, we may feel dry and distant from God, but we're not. The Apostle Paul assures us of this. Would you read this with me? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, bring it to full maturity, until the day of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews assures us of this. Would you say this? He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And above all, Jesus assured us, assures us of this. Read this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Would you stand with me? When he looks at you and he looks at me, yes, he sees our weakness. He knows it better than we know ourselves. Actually, he's really hoping we too will get in touch <laughs> with how weak we are apart from him. There's that season that some of us go through, I guess many of us go through, well, we got to try and try and try. No, no, Jesus, I got it. I got it. I promise you, I'll never do that again. You know, you know, bump. I'm no, not this time. I really mean it. Bump. Honest God, I'm, I won't do it again. Bump. At some point, we give up and go, you don't do this. I'm, I'm done. One of the, one great man, back in the 1500s, his name was Brother uh, Lawrence. Brother, Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. He worked in the kitchen at a monastery. And he would say things like this. And it's really, he says, God, you know me. I'm hopeless. And he said, if this is going to get changed, you'll have to do it. Now, he wasn't being passive. This wasn't sort of, sort of like, and it's not my problem. What he was saying is, I can't change this. I can't change me. I am giving you full permission. I'm inviting you by faith. Do your deep work in me. When I come to that place of helplessness in myself, but of full confidence in the power of God, anything can happen. Anything can happen. And he need to, you need to know, he looks at you and he sees past the weakness. Isn't he, isn't he a beautiful Lord? 
He looks at these guys and goes, you are so awesome. You are so awesome. You are going to change the world. And they did. They did. That group did. And so can we. So can we. The same grace as us. The same promise as ours. The same commitment of this bridegroom to passionately come after us and be with us and never leave us is here now. And we can do this in our generation, in our place. The same power and grace is with us. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we sense your great love for us and commitment to us. Where our eyes have focused on the past, where we have looked backwards and and tied ourselves, forgive us. We let that go. Where we have held others to the past and not let them grow, not let them free from their past failures, forgive us, O God. We just say, you who've laid hold of us, you will, you have, you will perform a good work in, in us until the day of Jesus Christ. You began it, you will finish it. It's predestined. <laughs> we will become like our beautiful Lord. Thank you, our Father. We yield to it. We embrace it. We rejoice in it. Lay hold of us. And we confess this day that we are filled with the Holy Spirit through faith and repentance. By receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now temples of the living God. Church, just say that. I'm a temple of the living God. He who began a good work in me will continue to perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He is with me always, even to the end of the age. Oh, Lord, we, we confess these things. We believe these things. And so, Lord, we, look, we too look past where we are. We too see the power of God and the faithfulness of God and the intent and purpose of God for us and for this generation for a mighty move. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We joyfully embrace it. Thank you, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. If you agree with me, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.